Welcome back to Studying Abroad in the Global South. In this episode, I have a very special guest, uh, my former colleague, Ahmed, from a previous life, whom I worked for many years implementing programs in Jordan. And today we're having a conversation about can we be non-exploitative to local communities in the study abroad context? I'm really happy to have him here and thank you so much for joining us. Today is a really exciting day. I'm really excited to be here because we have a very special treat. I sort of feel like we're getting the band back together. My former colleague is here in town visiting for a while, and he's in here today. Welcome, Ahmed. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, I'm really excited to be here, too. I might be more excited. So a little bit of background. My colleague Ahmed and I worked together in Amman, Jordan, for the same study abroad provider for something like five years. So we go with Way back, we were just talking before we started recording here. We have some stories that we could never share, and we have been through a lot together. So yeah. we've both since moved on, and we work for other organizations now, but we thought this was a good chance to get together and have some of these chats in a yeah. bigger forum than we used to have. Yeah, beyond closed doors. Yes, yes. beyond closed doors, <clears throat> absolutely. Um, yes, we have been in the study abroad field for so long and we've definitely seen so much speaking of either the Jordanian context or the Middle Eastern context so where should we begin from where exactly that's begin? always the question is like where, where to start yeah I think what we've been talking about as we got ready to do this we yeah. were talking about a lot of things I think we've settled on a theme that we want to yeah. talk about today and we're going to do it through a particular lens how we got there was two people who've been implementing study abroad programs for a really long time in a global south context yeah. so in this case Jordan but yeah. I think it's widely applicable Wide. yes <laughs> What are the things that we wish people knew? We're going to try to get about that through talking about bigger issues of engagement with local communities. I think we're going to try to start getting there by talking about housing. Um, I think housing at least gives us a good a good entree and a very like practical one. Yeah. So again, having done different study abroad programs, that's usually a highlight. Students always opt for a program that has a rich housing program. From a Global South point of view, students usually come with different expectations. And sometimes we are raising the question, is, who is this good for? Uh, whether it is a homestay, whether it's an apartment, how do students actually adapt and make the best out of that experience? So all the goods and bads about how both sides, in all cases, react to each other. I always raise the question of, who are we serving at the end of the day? As a Jordanian who has been doing this, I'm always questioning whether we're doing good or bad by opening our houses. As much as Jordan has a lot of hospitality reputation, is that a good thing or where does the benefit go? Where does the benefit go? Depending on your housing choice, like yeah. is it exploitative of local yeah. communities? And is it possible to not be exploitative yeah. of local communities? That is a very important question because who whose comfort matters the most, I think, is another big question. As a study abroad providers, do we care more about the homestays that stays with us and host for us throughout and therefore they are the center of our service? Or is it the student who comes to Jordan and wants to live in these homes, let's say, live an experiential life, but at the expense of the family? Oh, the student has certain dietaries or is it about 
oh, the student is uncomfortable with sharing a bedroom with someone else, but that's the culture. And then sometimes we see each other going towards pushing the families towards providing a comfort for the student. But is that the right thing? Are we asking too much of the families or is it the student's job to adapt to these living situations? It's not going to be home all the time, especially if a student is aware of the fact that they are traveling outside of their comfort zone. And not only that, Jordan is not Europe. And so the cultural differences and the disparity between cultures are massive. When we work with these families, are we helping them? Are we pushing them further? What are their incentives to be part of these programs? All these questions is just always in my head, at least. I'm sure uh, we all think about these things. And again, we raise the question, are we exploiting them or are we providing some sort of experience, a mutual experience for both the students and the families? We've jumped into homestays. Yeah. To back up for a second, because we probably have some people listening out there who may have a vague idea or may have like no idea what yeah. we're talking about whatsoever. A homestay on a study abroad program is when you would place a student in a local family's home. Yeah. There are all sorts of logistical things that go with that. Checking the families for suitability in terms of criminal background checks vetting, and yeah. vetting. Is the home appropriate? Is it safe? Yeah. Does it meet a certain safety standard? That kind of thing. In the end, especially when you're dealing with Jordan or any, any Global South country, money is changing hands. Absolutely. It's an incentive, and it's a good incentive. Yeah. And, you know, let's face it, most people cannot afford to host an American student out of the goodness of their hearts. Heart, yeah. Let's look at this from the market perspective. So much of what, and you're laughing, yeah. right? Because <laughs> in the end, this is an industry. This and something an we industry. say over yeah. and over again yeah. in this podcast is yeah. remember that this is an industry. Yeah. And, True. you know, we're looking at everybody, whether it's students or schools or parents, as paying customers. And like, I'm paying yeah. for this service and the family is getting money. money. I think we can all argue that making sure a homestay family, nobody has a criminal background yeah. and that a home meets a safety standard is important, but the things we impose on these people, True. given this situation, like, look at this as an industry, we're dealing with markets, we're dealing with people we talk about as customers. Yeah. Can you not be exploitative? I don't think so. It's a very difficult kind of balance to keep because as much as we promise the students a life-changing housing experience, this is where we think that the students are going to live, spend time, learn the language, language. Learn, learn a lot about the culture. Oh, this is what a typical house is. At the same time, I think from, again, from a Jordanian perspective, the whole idea of vetting for a Jordanian, nobody wants to talk about the money, of course. But then I was like, wait, I'm opening my house to the students. Why are you vetting me? That's where I think things at the beginning, again, depending on what is the motive behind each and every single, they all have different motives. But why are you vetting me? Why do you have to make sure that I'm suitable when I'm genuinely opening my house? Again, nobody wants to talk about the money. And that's, I think, the first step towards discomfort and maybe exploitation. It is our job by the end of the day to ensure the student's safety. And that is something that we take very serious and we will never compromise. But at the same time, that's, I think, the first step towards exploitation is we think that while we are opening our houses, we need to make sure that we don't have any other intentions. And that's just like the first part of the problem. Exactly. And even speaking of the money part, 
we got complaints from families over like oh my student is like eating four chickens a day <laughs> or something like i can't afford this anymore can you raise the pay even though these are agreements that are done beforehand with the families but then the families are sometimes confronted with scenarios where students are I don't know, over-exploiting or like consuming the resources that are being available. Americans eat a lot. <clears throat> yes, <laughs> that's, that's for sure. We have a reputation for um, eating a lot. A funny story is a homestay mother, uh, one time she she works and so she prepares dinner at night. Uh, what happened is that she did warak dawali, which is a wine leaves Mm-hmm. kind of local food so good and it's really it's my good favorite. i'm hungry exactly yeah. <laughs> and then uh, what happened is that she prepares the dinner and then she makes sure it's ready before she leaves to work the next day so that by the time everyone's back from work lunch is ready our student go home that day a little bit earlier see that pot on the on the stove and start picking up and everyone comes home right. that pot of the wali is gone and the woman was like wait where's food and the students like, oops, I finished it. And it was, and again, these are one of the cases that sometimes even as much as we try to work on the students and try to, to make them or equip them with lenses where they can be culturally aware, sometimes students feel too comfortable and drop the ball. And that's exploitation. I don't want to call it ignorance, but it is exploitation because you think that you are entitled. And that's, that's another thing exploitation on one end, but then it is also entitlement on the other end. I have paid for this. Right. Another kicker for me, we have so many issues that revolve around food and family eating times. And no matter how much we sit down with students and families beforehand and and do all of this training and try to do all of this mitigation, in the beginning, you're sort of, when somebody comes and says there's a food issue, there's probably some miscommunication, you know, and then it's your job to sort of bridge this miscommunication. So much of it is like, well, all they have is za'atar and zait and chubas and tea. They don't have breakfast cereal. Well, no. nobody here eats breakfast cereal. Yes, you know exactly. what I mean? Like, it's a very easy one. There aren't cinnamon rolls. I usually have yogurt and fruit yeah. and muesli like or whatever or, for breakfast. Yeah. Like, we don't yeah. have those. That's not common. Why don't you, one morning, go get some of that Good. and bring yeah. it home and home. share it share with, with, tell your share, family. Sharing is another thing. Sharing food, putting your legs up on the in someone's face. Uh, these are all these cultural clues and cues that may be simple and people don't really pay too much attention to, but also... The framework is big. Is big. Like, they're tiny Absolutely. little things and the framework, framework is, is big. big. For me, honestly, where the exploitation kind of start, I think it goes in that same space where you're starting to crack the door yeah. open that you talked about yeah. earlier, the vetting. Yeah. We never vet a study abroad student with the rigor that we vet a host family yeah. or that we vet a Jordanian roommate or a roommate from yeah. wherever. True. And you and I have both seen it. I mean, the stories we could tell about student X one semester gets in a bar fight, almost drinks themselves to death, and we have to go pluck them from the police station at three in the morning. Ahmed and I have plucked a lot of people from police stations Uh (laughs) at three uh in the morning. So this comes from a place of of knowledge and things that actually happened. But then you find out that student on their own campus had X number of alcohol violations 
chose counseling to basically get out of some sort of more punitive measure on their campus, was allowed to study abroad, and now you've put this person who frankly clearly has a substance problem and is violent when they're consuming those substances, and we're putting them in somebody's home who's trusting us. And they refrain from disclosing these information as they apply, as much as we ask them to disclose these information. I mean, for their best interest, by the end of the day, we want to make sure that they are having a good experience and accommodation, but they choose not to disclose these information. And so we end up exploiting one part in the name of safety and security, but nobody cares who are we actually receiving. And that is a big, I would say, ethical question. I would like to criminally background check students, to be honest. Can we do that? Try doing that as professional providers of educational I, programs. I don't think that will go down no. well. But isn't it only fair? Does that go back to the whole idea of stereotyping? Is that the nature and the requirement that comes along with going to a, a region like the Middle East? Do we actually vet programs who work in Europe, for instance, or Latin America? Do they actually vet or do they not? I, I don't know, honestly. It is a, a nature to the work we does is that We always give the student preferential treatment. In the last 10 years of doing study abroad, we always knew that there is a lot of homestays, people that are interested to host students, and therefore, if we lose one homestay, that's not a big deal, as long as we're not losing students. And we need to make sure, even if a student comes with very specific requirements and accommodation needs, we will go out of our way to make sure that we accommodate them. Mm We had cases where students and families did not work out and families didn't host again, whether it was their fault or not, and they were to be blamed. Um, Most of these actions are taken on the family's end uh, rather than the student's end. Well, and in the Amen context, since we still both work in it in some way, not only was it the case that, you know, if something happened with our old organization and we had to put a family on a quote-unquote blacklist... We would meet twice yearly with the other organizations and we would immediately reach out, uh, particularly if a family is never hosting again and going on a blacklist, something bad has happened. Or even if that bad thing hasn't happened, we have to assume it happened happened. and put them on a blacklist. And that's actually happened to a lot of families. And in some cases, it wasn't right. We share that with all the other Uh, providers. So that family never hosts again. again and we know for a fact that they bounce from one program to another down the the career of hosting they get dependent on that amount of money that they receive at the end of the month and suddenly if something wrong happens whether it, it did happen or not they are left alone with whatever commitments they have and that happened before we had families call and it's like why are you not giving me a student yeah. next semester i have loans to pay mm-hmm. installments that i have to pay it's very exploitative, I think, and favors the student without vetting, with no background check or any attention on the student's part versus harsh, being really harsh and easy to let go, for instance. Mm-hmm. Sometimes after a long time of hosting, it's easy for us to say, oh, you've done something wrong. You're out. Yalla bye. You've also worked now with sort of moving out of the homestay model, but still involving Jordanians in the home. You've now worked in a very different model where students have 
private apartments, yeah. but not just with themselves, so, which is yeah. a very typical mind. That comes with its own set of issues for yeah. students, True. for the doorman who yeah. are responsible for yeah. watching the building, the for Jordanian neighbors yeah. or neighbors wherever you are. But you've now worked with having Jordanian roommates yeah. moving into those private yeah. apartments. Yeah. What aspects <clears throat> of that exploitative relationship yeah. have True. you seen there? How is it different? Is it better in any ways? Is it worse? I think it is not necessarily specific to one model of housing over the other, but it is, again, are we not being hypocritical in the sense that we hold everyone to the same standard of an engagement and interaction or not? From my experience, it has always been that we're holding the locals to a higher standard. And again, we point the blame over someone local if something goes wrong, whether it did actually or whether they took part of that wrongdoing or not. Who's invested more? You would expect everyone to be as invested in these because, again, you are here, you are in Jordan, you are here to learn the language, engage in culture, see what is it like to be living here. But then you have a family or you were given a Jordanian roommate. Are you actually invested in, in engaging? Are you invested in learning? If we assign you a language pledge that we try to hold you accountable to it and we ask your Jordanian roommates to be committed to this pledge, are you actually holding yourself to a standard where you just go home and practice Arabic or no? The idea of exploitation, I think, comes from that we are not working on the same standards with both part of the equation, the student and the, let's call them the service provider. We do give a preferential treatment to one over the other. That's always a, not an easy position that we always hold. While the homestay or the Jordanian roommate or even the Jordanian partner are the people that are with us and they are more likely to come and continue working with us. And we would rather work with someone that we still want to get to know. We invest is, so much in them too. It, like Training them, uh, getting them to work according to our reference. Like each organization has, has its own ways, has its own mechanisms of work. We train them, we invest in them, and then... We like them. Yeah, and then... They're good. We build relationships with them. They're yes. the, the whole family over years and years. In you years. Know? And then one complaint or yeah. two complaints, and then they are out of the door. But again, there is no punishment on the student. I remember when I first started, it might be week two of a 16-week semester, and a student would start coming. There's an issue in the homestay. Yeah. There's this, that, and the other. I don't know how to interpret it. Can you help me? Can yeah. you talk to my host family? What can I do? We used to impose like a two-week waiting period. Yeah. There's a difference between being uncomfortable and unsafe. Sometimes when you're uncomfortable, you are no, unsafe. And that's one thing. But I think very often the two get conflated. And when you're dropped in a new country in a stranger's house, like you're, it's going to be uncomfortable. You can have the most wonderful mama, host mama in the world. Things are still going to be kind of weird. And weird. they, they yeah. should be. If they True. weren't weird, then you shouldn't be doing this in the first place. We used to actually try to work it out, you know, and yeah. try to help the students and the family work it out and try to intervene as best we could. Flash forward several years later, and it's like, we don't even try anymore. Blah, blah, blah. I'm unhappy. I'm uncomfortable. These seven things happen. I don't know what to make of them. Here, let's move you. Having done this for so long, I think it's a generational issue. We are looking at the same study abroad. We are basically marketing in the same way. We are attracting kind of the same caliber of students all the time. 
thinking about students in the study abroad field in 2007 up to 2000, probably 10 or 11, it was a completely different generation than the generation we're dealing with at the same time here. These students come to Jordan on the basis of we are the future leaders. Uh, we have strong personalities. We know exactly what we want. We are resilient. We can sustain our like gain in a completely different culture. We're woke. Two weeks, two weeks down the line, what happens? A complete explosion. We're not talking about all the, the, the students, but we get a good portion of students. This is maybe something on educational culture in the, in the United States. But the thing is, they hold students tend to hold themselves to a high standard. Mm -hmm. Anything that makes them uncomfortable down the road in a study abroad context, they just somewhat collapse. And I think we start to see a lot of depression, stress, issues come along the way. They're struggling. They've never struggled like this before in I mean, this context. Yes, that's, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, they're struggling that, yeah. in new ways and it's hard. It is. Not, and it, it hits them upside the head. It does. And we have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And we have to enforce, going back to the whole idea of, of exploitation and accommodation, we have to try to make sure that everyone is accommodating them and everyone is not stepping on their toes. We can both remember the days when there weren't a lot of study abroad students in Jordan or our region. I think when we both started working professionally in this field, it was still the early days, right? 9-11 happened and all of a sudden you had all of these wonderful students who sort of took that and wanted to learn, you know, yeah. for the good, yeah. wanted to focus on languages. And in many ways they were very career driven. There's kind of a difference in intention, I think, with students now versus then. They weren't as career-oriented. It was like, something has gone wrong and I need to understand. Yeah. And all of a sudden, there were all of these students yes. studying hard languages yeah. and coming to parts of the world in numbers they had never, never come to come, before. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, providers, which had maybe never operated in a range of countries or maybe had a little like group every year, there were like five students yeah. who would come. Suddenly, there were like... I mean, in the days in Jordan before Daesh, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. We had, we had, hundreds. yeah. I, I mean, at some point in, 2000, I think 2011, 2012, we were talking about 150 to 170 pair program. Yeah, um, some per semester. Per semester. Yeah. That was a boost. Um, suddenly, it's like, uh, it was like study abroad on steroid. After a semester where we had, for instance, 60 or 70 students. Now we're going back to that, to mm -hmm. that stable number. And then there is this rush for providing, for recruiting, recruiting, local, 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 go local, go local. Mm -hmm. We need to provide the experience. We need to, like, this is our moment to shine. What happens is just like fast recruitment, a lot of exploitations. Because we've industrialized it, right? Yeah. I mean, in the beginning, in the scramble, and when study abroad in this part of the world became popular, there were fewer resources. Everyone was kind of trying to build these programs and figure them out. And now we're like a factory. I think in many ways that's true of every provider, you know, because we're all working within a certain set of standards that we have to have. And we had to do these for, for large numbers of people yeah. over a long period of time. And so now it's like, churn them out. Turn them out. And yeah. we're set up in a way to like have everything done for everybody. Yeah, and we're still trying to work and promote the idea of experiential study abroad. Let's go and try to experience. But at some point became more of a quantity issue rather than a quality issue. And that was a big question mark. And now we're talking about short-term programs. And that is of itself is an, an exploitative relationship because, again, we're accommodating the, the students. The turnout is really fast. From the host community perspective, it, is, it becomes exhausting too. 
Think about yeah. so, someone going in and out. All, all summer, exactly. it's like this. It's like a revolving door of programs yeah. for the entire summer or for a January or for a May. And yeah. in our realm, because traditionally language is such a part of it, it's hard to achieve a high level of competency in Arabic there are all these parts of the industry now that are like, how do we do these deep language and culture dives in two weeks? In three and it's like, weeks, who yeah. are we kidding? Give yeah. me a break. Yeah. But also this is the trend. This is the trend. This we is gotta absolutely do it. the trend and we got to do this it. This is what we're being forced to do. This but, is what we have to do. But also, again, going back to the whole idea of exploitation, think about it from not only host families, staff. People who are working oh, on study abroad programs, their summers is a nightmare. It's a nightmare. It is absolutely a nightmare because back in the days when summer used to be an easy, easy going program and you are working full on fall and spring and summer is a downtime. Now summer is is nonstop. It's there is not you cannot even take a day off. You we were together yeah. working together when our office went from running seven programs a year to all of a sudden the next year we had like 16 or 17. We had to completely Maybe. change our policies on leave and vacation True. and introduce comp time and these sorts of things because no one could take their leave. And going on for summer, which is a very compact period of time, the turnout is really, it's exhausting because you have to do it because that's where the market is going as an industry. And all these study abroad all over the world and our part of the world is on high demand. Yep. And so the, the turnout is, again, really quick, quick, quick. And each program is different. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. like you're doing it for 170 students over 15 weeks no. in one program one, where all the components are the same. Yeah. It's like this three-week program, this one-week yeah. program, this 10-day program. Each one wants or to do a different, different thing. thing. And people are, would always say, like, well, why don't you just hire temporary staff? It's like, how do you hire temporary staff for this very specific the, yeah. job yeah true <laughs> fraught with so many things yeah. and then the kicker is finally you'll have like a spring break and you're like oh my gosh we're not going to have students on no. site for a week oh. and then it's spring break in like every university uni in the united it's states it's and literally every professor in study abroad office decides that's when they're going to make their site visit to the country yeah you know, and then you I, have all yeah. these requests for like programs and customized and all of that. And then, oops, your, your break is gone. It's yeah. gone and it burns people out. You know, one thing I really love about having moved on is that I'm still on call, yeah. basically, but that I was on call 24-7 for five years. Yeah, being on call is absolutely a tough part of the job. 24-7, it can be a mosquito bite at 4 a.m. in the morning that is not making a student be able to go back to sleep or something act actually substantial and that you have to pick them off a police station. This is a valid complaint from an industrial point of view and you have to move, get up and running. Our complaints, <laughs> Ahmed, will never be as valid. No, who are we? <laughs> All right, and on that, there's so much more. I feel like we could just like yeah. record 400 like, episodes yes. or something like that. Yeah. But with this one, we'll stop there. Ahmed, it is so lovely to see you. I'm just so happy. <laughs> like my heart is so full right now. And it's really lovely to have you here. And thank you. Thank you very much for the for this opportunity and this kind of rant and venting session. Uh, it was really good. And I hope it would resonate with, with some of the listeners out there who work and study abroad and sure. keep an open mind and reflective idea about, or thoughts about when they do provide for study abroad. And please always feel free to reach out to us with any questions. That's what we're here for. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Studying Abroad in the Global South. 
The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individual speaking and do not reflect or represent the views or opinions of Amit East or any of its affiliates. Please visit our website at amiteastedabroad.org and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next time for something clever, snarky, and or hopefully useful.